In this episode, we have special guest Mia Park, who is a yoga teacher, writer, actress, music producer, and event producer, and a volunteer. She shares her ancestry's incredible story of escaping from North Korea to South Korea, the joys and challenges of acting, being Nurse Beth on the show Chicago Med, the lessons of self in teaching prenatal yoga in jails, and how women can explore their relationship to being a leader. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Embody Podcast, a show about remembering and embodying your true nature, inner wisdom, embodied healing, and self-love. My name is Candace Wu, and I'm a holistic healing facilitator, intuitive coach, and artist sharing my personal journey of vulnerability, offering meditations and guided healing support, and having co-creative conversations with healers and wellness practitioners from all over the world. There is no sponsorship message today, but I do want to share a new dream class that I created, which is on Skillshare. This is one of my passions is to explore dreams. I love, love dream work. And so I created a dream class on how to remember your dreams, the basics about how to prepare yourself, create intentions around it, and the tools you'll need, as well as the key factor to remembering your dream when you wake up. This is the first class in a series of many that will dive into the juicy parts of dream work, which is embodying the energy and the gifts and wisdom that a dream brings you so that you can bring that into your life and feel even more whole. You can find this first class that's about 35 minutes long on Skillshare at CandiceWu.com slash dreamclass1, the number one. Right now, this class is offered for free. I'd love for you to just get a taste of it. And please leave me a review and share your feedback about what you thought about the class. And uh, that helps to also share that work with other people who are looking for a class about remembering their dreams. If you sign up through the link that I'm sharing with you today, CandiceWood.com slash dreamclass1, you can also get two months free of the premium subscription I think that after two months, it's about $10 to access a wide variety of classes and um, offerings that are on Skillshare. Happy New Year, everyone. How are you all doing? It's great to have you here. I can't believe it's been practically one year of doing this podcast. I remember the first time I did it, I recorded it like three or four times. And... I was scared in so many steps of the way, sharing certain things that I did, sharing really personal topics, even interviewing people. It's just not always easy, but looking back, it's just gotten so much easier. I feel a lot freer in my ability to voice what I want to say and to feel genuine in doing so. Still feel like there's a long way to go in in some places, but I'm celebrating how I've been able to transform over this year. If you haven't done so already, it's a great time to look back on last year and look at the celebrations, feel into the things that you've grown on and integrate those into your being so that there's part of you. There's a podcast right before the new year 
about ending the year with grace and embracing impermanence, integrating and cleansing the energy of last year. So if you want to check that out, you can go to candicewu.com slash ending the year. And as I feel into the celebration of this podcast and my ability to voice things out into the world, I also feel into ease. Ease seems to be something that stayed with me for a while ever since I went to Thailand last year. Just the question of how can I bring more ease into my life? Not necessarily how can I choose the easy way, even though that is part of it, because a lot of times there's just a simpler way to approach something, a more direct way than I'm used to or than my patterns have shown me, but also how to be in the state of ease while moving through life, while working, while creating things. And when I think about ease, bring it into my body, my muscles soften and I can enjoy things. Are there places for you that you want to bring the energy of ease or softening or feeling graceful? And if you have other intentions for yourself for the year, I invite you to tune into that now. There are states of being or themes, words that really bring a feeling to life for you. For me, it's about revisiting that energy daily or as many times a day as I can remember, really moving from that place. It's really fun to have Mia Park on the show today. She's a friend of mine. We first met through advanced yoga teacher training through the Darshan system with Jim Kolakowski. And I remember at that time just how unafraid she was of being herself, asserting herself, exploring topics of yoga and life and digging into the truth And it's actually the first time I also learned about chanting mantras while cooking because she'd often bring some yummy, delicious meals and offer them to us and shared that she would chant different mantras that brought peace to her body and um, infused into the food. And it was delicious. So I loved that and kind of opened my eyes to how energy might work in different ways. I find Mia's zest and energy for learning to be so contagious and her care for others and determination to support Asian women, especially in theater and in their lives in general, is really inspiring. Mia is powered by hope and engagement and as a Chicago-based multidisciplinary artist, she shares her passion for discovery through acting, teaching yoga, writing, playing music, producing events, and volunteering. She's just involved in so many different facets of life that um, she's well-informed and engaged in all of these. So without further ado, here's Mia. So Mia, I click open your website and I see you in this commercial and you're like shooting some sort of laser gun Mm -hmm. and your face is just this like feisty, sneaky, playful face. And when I saw that, I was like, yes, that's exactly how I see Mia. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cool. So 
I wanted to welcome you to the show and um, just start with that and give you the chance to share. Oh my gosh, you are so many different things in the world and you have so many talents. You're a playwright, you're a writer, you're an actress, you're a yoga teacher, you're an activist, feminist. Well, what are you not? <laughs> might be one question. Thanks. You're so sweet. Thanks, Candace. Um, I think what I'm not is a slow person who can focus on one thing. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. You're like a multitasker goddess. <laughs> Thanks. I don't thank you. I, I appreciate that. And I understand you're saying that like as a way to compliment me and I honor that. Yeah. But I'm in a place in my life where I wonder what it would be like if I wasn't. Because oh, I'm so drawn at so many to so many things. And I am I have to say, I you know, I understand that I am good at most things that I want to do. I mean, not to say that I'm not, I can't learn. Believe me, I've got a lot to learn, but I'm successful enough at most things that I attempt that I am encouraged by whatever level of success I achieve to keep doing more. And I don't know mm. how healthy that is right now. The other side of that is that I am having fun. <laughs> I can I see that. Very, very lucky life. I feel really lucky for everything that I do. But I just wonder what it would be like to do one thing and do that deeply. This doesn't happen. That's okay. <laughs> so let's backtrack a little, Mia. How, and it may be a more lengthy story, I'm not sure, but how did you get to where you are now in your life? Where you are both, you know, all these things in your life, you, you're, you're acting, you're on Chicago Med as Nurse Beth, right? Yes. Yes. You're in Chicago Go still. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And you teach, you have private clients, um, teaching yoga in group classes as well, Yoga Nidra. Um, and I know that you're involved with Asian American theater and promoting other Asian Americans to um, be more involved. How did you get here in your life? Oh, what a great question. Thanks. Um, I think I, I just redid my bio lines and these things evolve, right? How we describe ourselves, who we are in relationship mm -hmm. to ourselves. And my bio line, I think, frames how I got here. I say, I define myself now as someone who is powered by hope and engagement. I, throughout all the traumas that I've survived in my family and then other uh, kind of like actions I've taken as adults, <laughs> as an adult, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I have always been driven by hope. And I'm very thankful for that. And I think that's something that I may or may not be in control of. This has a lot to do, I think, with karma and um, some scar, you know, the kind of like life's mm -hmm. path, lives path that led me here. And also the um, predisposition I enter this, this particular reality with. So there's part of that that, that um, informs the level of hope I have, which is a lot. So I've certainly felt times of deep despair and hopelessness. But um, having kind of been present to myself through that, I think hope is what brought me to where I am. Because I keep, no matter how difficult or challenging things get, I have connected to this underlying hope that whatever I'm experiencing is for an educational self-awareness, positive, if you're going to say positive and negative, positive experience of being alive. And the hope that this life mm -hmm. is beneficial for myself and for others. Um, 
so there's a there's a lot of hope there. So I guess in in the, yeah. the kind of chronological tactile thing. So I was born and raised in Philly, and both my parents are from Korea. Uh, and you and I were just talking; they're actually not from what we think of as South Korea today or South Korea. My mother escaped from North Korea with her family. My father was born in Japan as a second-class citizen. So they actually both did not get to South Korea until they were about seven or eight years old as child refugees, already having survived World War II, both of them, and then additional trauma on top of that. So they met, yeah, they met and married in the States, which is a little unusual, um, as opposed to coming over as a couple. So I'm born and raised in Philly. Mm, Right. Um, My household growing up was absolutely chaotic. Um, I went through a lot of pretty gnarly stuff growing up. And um, I'm very happy to have the wits about myself to be an adult who can look back and maintain hope and hopefulness, thinking about uh, what family life was like for my five-unit family, particularly myself. And then uh, with my own kind of drive to survive, uh, despite everything that was going on in our crazy home, I uh, maintained creative and escapism was a mm-hmm. lot of what I went through. So I think that it's kind of, again, what drives it? Is it karma? Is it nature or nurture? Because I had a crazy home that I wanted to escape. So I be- was an artist, which it helped me escape what was happening. So or did I escape what was happening because I was an artist? You know, that type of thing. So I was always mm-hmm, uh, into fine right. arts, always creative. I always was into whatever was um, different. I always bunked the system. I didn't like what group people were doing. Um, but I, I grew up in church, which I found to be very beneficial because it connected me to this concept that there's something outside of life than what was right in front of me. And it's unfortunate to me, very, very unfortunate that coming from an indigenous ethnic culture that has its own spiritual background, um, because of the missionary work and the choices my family made, I grew up thinking a white man with a beard, not obtainable to me by my own resources, was the the pinnacle of spirituality and that I had to run to that guy for savior. Sorry, but mm. fuck that mm. shit. You can bleep that out later. <laughs> I just thought that that was <laughs> Do you like, want me to? <laughs> if you want, it's up to you. You can keep it. But I, you know, and I kind of rejected that from a young age because I thought this cannot possibly be the spiritual path that I'm supposed to be on right now. I just Now I, wait, are you saying that this is the the spirituality that was brought to you because of your surroundings or, yeah, or your parents more, yeah, or more Christianity. Both. Mm-hmm. both my surroundings a Korean community in Philadelphia was really small growing up and so what we had was church as our community there was mm-hmm. like 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 I don't even think there was a Korean dry cleaner there was like one Korean restaurant in all of Philadelphia there was one Korean grocery store in all of Philadelphia our community wow. was small this is where we were yeah and so um where we hung out was church. It was community. My father never went to church. He was always an atheist. Um, so it was really my mom. Uh, so growing up with that way, I rejected the kind of like, I, I to this day, still rejecting the cisgender, white, middle-aged or elder man in power. White man? I don't know. I've still I've always had a little problem with that. Ironically, I think because mm-hmm. I'm so conditioned to think that that white man is the... Uh, is the the prize as far as being a woman of color growing up in a house of you know with immigrants my preference and partners has always been a white male american for the most part (laughs) isn't that interesting interesting? i mean i've certainly had relationships with other men that weren't white or american Mm -hmm. but pretty much that's kind of been the the prize for me if i could you know 
somehow capture the attention of a white male in power, then I feel both safe and also accomplished at the same time. But at the same time, I reject God as a white man, you know, in that way. So that's that. So I think that kind of like rebellion of spirituality, yet longing for spirituality also set the tone for the choices I made. So I was a crazy teenager, um, started playing rock drums when I was 19. Um, so I've been playing rock drums for decades now, which is pretty fun. And, um, I can just see you as a 19 year old, like blasting on the drums. Oh, so <laughs> letting <fun>. it loose. <laughs> Still letting it loose. Yeah. So somewhere in that being, feeling lost and trying to find myself phase, I ended up doing a ton of drugs, moved to Austin, Texas to form a band, but did way more drugs than started a band. Like I was out of my mind every day on drugs in Austin. Um, and then to get out of that, I decided to move to Korea. So I moved from, and I moved, we moved around so much growing up too, because my dad's just like not a balanced human being. And he kept making choices that made us move. So I moved from Philly, moved all around Philly, then to Austin, Texas. And then from Austin, I moved back to Philly for a little bit. And then I moved to Korea, South Korea. And I was there for a little over a year. Then I moved back to Philly um, because my father ended up going to prison the first time. And I decided to come back to help my mom out. And then from there, I moved here to Chicago. Oh, yeah. We also moved to L.A. when I was a teenager because my dad was like, we're moving to L.A. So we moved to L.A. Mm. And then after a year, he's like, we're moving back to Philadelphia. So that was somewhere in the mix. And then I've been in Chicago ever since. I decided to come here to go to a college outside of Chicago called um, Shimer College. It's a great book school. So I went from living in Korea to coming to like a classics, like dead white European male classics way of learning, like Socratic method of learning. But that was yeah. beneficial too because it helped me discipline my squirrely mind into a framework of how I can discourse and interact with people kind of in a modified way because before I would just be like a big ball of energy exploding all over. <laughs> <laughs> so then, yeah, I just stayed in Chicago since then. I got into um, cardio kickboxing because I grew up doing martial arts because my father was a martial arts master for a while. So that was I grew up doing that. So I started to merge this like desire for creative life, which was playing drums. And then I got into acting and also the spiritual life that I got through um, growing up in church. And then this kind of physical life through kickboxing and selling Kung Fu. And they all kind of started to merge a little bit together. And then I am lucky, but I'm also super driven. So again, driven with that idea. No, really? Yeah, really. <laughs> with that hope, that thing of hope, just like, I wonder what this is. I am going to check mm-hmm. that out. So I wonder what acting's like. I'm going to get into acting. And like 18, almost 19 years later, here I am still acting professionally. And that a whole thing of the physical thing of like, I was actually doing, um, teaching kickboxing and there was a yoga class after kickboxing. And this was in 2000, the year 2000 or something. And uh, I was like, what is this yoga thing? And that's when I first started my physical yoga practice. And now I'm teach- I've been mm. teaching yoga since uh, 2006. So I've been teaching since then. And then, um, yeah, and of course, yoga was a great path leader for me to in- involve myself more in a spiritual path. And actually, my spiritual path now is more of a Taoist work. And honestly, I, I both do Tai Chi, uh, a Tai Chi practice and asana. So the physical. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a, both a yoga and um, yoga physical practice that I practice. So I guess that's mm-hmm. how that led me to where I am, just like the fearlessness and maybe ignorance to just dive into whatever I want to. Um, like a respect for what holds 
me together and like being rule abiding to an extent, but also super rebellious and like questioning what I'm doing and why. So I hope that helps. I can absolutely see that in you. And I, um, as I'm hearing you talk about your, your life story and your path, I'm hearing it with a whole different lens in the context of your ancestry story, because your ancestry escaped what was, I actually don't know the conditions, but they left Korea and found a better life. And so that hope and that being rebellious and questioning things and going for things, maybe even blindly, sounds so familiar to that story. And I would love for you to share that story with everyone listening. Yeah, thanks. I think it's an amazing story. As much as I have a lot of anger and work on forgiveness for my parents and um, Mm -hmm. kind of processing whatever uh, residual effects I have from the household we grew up in, very, very violent household, um, then I I still have, I'm I'm better able to put their actions into context, thinking about their origin stories. So my father was born and raised outside of Nagasaki, Japan, as a second-class citizen. The Japanese, for those who are not aware, the Japanese colonized the peninsula of Korea and treated Koreans as a workforce, as second-class citizens. So there were many, many, many thousands and thousands of Koreans that lived in Japan as laborers because the hope, the educational hope for their children was better in Japan. And also because there was work, there was money. Korea was very poor at the time. And I'm talking about the Korean Peninsula. So eventually, Korean Peninsula was divided after World War One, actually. And the Chinese communists kind of had more of a hold of North Korea. And then the Japanese had South Korea colonized. So this is what I'm understanding. So my father mm-hmm. was born and raised in Nagasaki and actually survived the Nagasaki bombing towards the end of World War II. He was seven. Um, and because he was a second-class citizen, it saved their life, he and his family, because the Koreans lived on the outskirts of town. He said in little shacks, and the, it was dirt-paved roads. It wasn't even sophisticated at all. Sometimes they had electricity. And he was outside playing, and he, they were used to planes being overhead. But he heard the planes, and he said the ground shook, and then everything caught on fire at once, including, oh, including wow. people. Yeah. So he ran. What an incredible sight. Yeah. Like I can't even imagine seeing that. Yeah. And experiencing that. So he ran. Yeah, he ran back to the house, the little Korean enclave. And then shortly after that, the Japanese sur- uh, surrendered and then they kicked out all of the Koreans. So my grandfather took my dad. At that time, there was a family of five, his family. And they, they fled. So my father did not arrive to South Korea until he was like seven. And they had to redo all of their paperwork. So they were there and they settled in a town called uh, Tegu. Or outside of Tegu, actually. Uh, interestingly, Tegu is the only major, Ameri- uh, major city that was not captured by the communists after the Americans came in through the North Korea. I'm digressing now. So anyway, families, basically my dad's family was pretty safe ending up in Tegu. Um, Mm. And then my mother Mm -hmm. was born and raised in North Korea. And because her father was going to be killed because he wouldn't give up Christianity, the Christian God, my grandfather escaped. And then my mom and some of her siblings escaped. And then her grandparents and their siblings, uh, I'm sorry, her grandparents and other of my mom's siblings escaped in three waves. 
they escaped from North Korea to South Korea. So my mother didn't come to South Korea until she was eight. And so again, both mm-hmm. of my parents surviving World War II in North Korea and Japan, respectively, and then surviving the trauma of escaping or fleeing from where they were, landing in South Korea as uh, children, so already having gone through all that trauma, right? And then right. surviving the Korean War. Oh my gosh, I don't think oh we have that goodness. long. Yeah, my dad's all over. Yeah. All over. My dad was separated by people. He was, I think, 11 or 12 at that point, And his sister was 12 or 13. And the two of them having pockets full of money that did nothing. They walked from Seoul. They were actually in Seoul at the time. They walked from Seoul to Pusan. They walked. Um, and wow, they were, that's a long way. Oh my God. They were so hungry. They would run into people's houses and like steal raw sweet potatoes or raw rice and just eat that and they walked all the way to Pusan because they had other family in Pusan. The war was in Seoul, not Pusan yet, so they had to go. And he's my dad said all the money in their pockets couldn't get them on a boat uh or a plane or or anything. Like I'm talking about mm-hmm. transportation that wasn't even available on a bus mm-hmm. basically or a train. It just wasn't available. Right. They couldn't do it. So then my mom ended up in Seoul and um here's an interesting story. So my my mother's grandmother. Not, not this whole thing. Not that this yeah. whole thing isn't. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? This is, right. Well, you and I talked but about this on. specific point, which was, I think is so fascinating. Yeah. I don't believe in coincidences, right? Like I believe in there being a fate and a lesson in everything. So mm-hmm. um, my mother's two younger sisters and her grandmother and grandfather walked from their apple orchard in North Korea, they walked along the coast of the ocean. They actually walked in the ocean during the night and slept in the mountains during the daytime to escape from North Korea. And they gagged my two aunts because they were crying. So they would hold them on their back and walk in the ocean up to their chins during the night and then sleep in the mountains and like with these gagged children, ungag them and feed them and then gag them again. Type of thing. Uh, were they babies? Yeah, they were children. They were yeah. they were under three years old and under. Wow. And so uh, they made it, took them a month. Meanwhile, my mother had reunited miraculously with her father. So my my father, my mother's siblings, except for the two younger and her parents were reunited. They had a house in Seoul. And um, their aunt, who is still alive, she's 100, my great aunt, was on the way to teach Sunday school. They'd already gotten into Seoul and went, was part of a church. And she just decided to take another way to Sunday school. And you have to remember, this was before the war started, but after World War II. So people were poor and begging and were all along the streets everywhere. So my grandfather had an apple orchard and had like smuggled enough money um, to where they could have a house. And they had like a huge, they had huge family, that's right. So it was like a lot of people living in this little house, but at least they had a house. So it's not uncommon mm-hmm. to have people like begging on the streets and be, uh, we would say, homeless and just all over. So my aunt, you know, was walking to Sunday school down a new path and she heard a baby wailing. And she thought, oh, my gosh, that sounds like my niece. Only my niece has that particular wail. Mm. And oh, she, my goodness. She turned around and walked back and she saw her parents squatting in the dirt road with her nieces begging for food and money and she had walked right past her own parents begging they were so dirty and so thin 
that she didn't even recognize her own mom and dad. And so she said, oh my gosh, mom, dad, it's me. And they didn't recognize her because, you know, there were so many people walking by. Yeah. So there was a huge, beautiful reunion right there in the dirt road. And she scooped them up and her nieces and walked back to the house. And this was my father's sister. So it was my father's parent. I'm sorry, my grandfather's sister. So my grand, it was my grandparent, my grandfather's parents. So huge reunion. Mm-hmm. So this the, is incredible. Oh, it's incredible. So <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> all the children, my mother and all of her siblings were reunited. And my grandfather and grandmother were there. And my grandfather's sister and my grandfather's parents. So basically that part side of the family was all together. Wow. Yeah. So how many years had they gone or how much time had gone months. by? There had been months. Probably Ugh. my grandfather left months before the rest of them. So if, the whole entire family as a unit together, I'm going to say maybe four or six months, maybe. Wow. Um, so my grand, my mother reunited with her father a couple months after he had left. And it took my great grandmother and aunts a month to walk down. So yeah, probably the whole thing, six months um, or more. Wow. You know? It's hard to That's... get the clue in because my parents are elderly and a little more not as centered. And plus, they don't like talking about this. But they're talking about my mom, I guess. My mom will talk about it, but she mm-hmm. doesn't really remember. She'll often say, oh, ask my uncle. He'll know more than me. And I ask my uncle and he'll just go like, oh, you, that? I don't know. Why do you want to hear about that? Do you know? So it's hard <laughs> to kind of being another Asian with, you know what I'm talking about? There's that lineage yeah. of not wanting to talk about things, which has to do with this whole kind of Confucius lineage, I think. Of just, you know, just being humble or not wanting to talk about your past too much sometimes. Right. So so yeah. that's a, that's just the tip of the iceberg. But that was a pretty interesting way that my mom's family, my, my mom and my dad's family, my dad ended up in South Korea. Wow. So how does knowing your story, knowing your family's story, how does that affect you? Or wh- especially when you found this out? Well, I found it out in steps which was thankful. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just one huge reveal. Um, the older my parents get, the more they, they will talk about what happens. So it's a little more um, easy to process for me. How that reveals itself to me is that I realize that I come from tough people. I come from yeah. survivors. And so I myself, I fancy myself a scrapper, meaning that I use... Mm-hmm. All kinds. I'm very creative with the resources I draw from in order to not only survive but thrive. Absolutely, I find you incredibly resourceful. Thanks, and that that has to do yeah. with my own traumatic upbringing, but also the way my parents were raised, um, and the way this trauma they survived, and the way I was raised with them. You know, we did things like if we wouldn't buy scotch tape. This is an example. Instead of buying scotch tape. We would use Korean sticky rice to seal gifts when we wrap them to save money. Oh, wow. Like that's what I'm talking about, Scrappy. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that's right. also like my mom saying growing up with like, what's sticky tape? Like, what is that? Right. Um, but it's yeah. also like, wait, we've got rice. Why am I spending money on, like, why am I spending 59 cents on scotch tape? There's rice here. This right. So that's how we give, so I give all gifts to my friends with like sticky rice, like all the birthday. You know? And I look in hindsight and I go like, oh my God, how embarrassing. Like a part of me at some point would go like, I hope my American friends don't realize this is put together with rice. Right now I look back and I'm like, that's awesome. Right. Seal every I, I gift with it. sticky rice. Every gift. 
It's brilliant. You know, anyway, yeah. <laughs> Forget hair gel. What? Just smush up some sticky rice. Anything that needs binding. Yeah. Sticky rice is your solution. And if you're hungry, <laughs> you know, you can have a little dessert. <laughs> Eat your gift wrap. That's all I got to say. <laughs> yeah. If you must. If you must. Well, it's it's reminding me of the story of, um, sorry, remind me who it is, that, but eating the money in order to bring it over. Oh, that's another part of the story. That's right. I love that part. Yeah, thanks. So my great-grandmother, my mother's father's mother, my mother's grandmother. After mother's they had, grandmother. Yeah, mother's okay. grandmother. After they had survived and uh, ended up in, in Seoul, this was before the start of the Korean War. My mom would wake up and her grandmother would just be gone and be gone for like three to five weeks at a time. And they were like, where is she? Where's grandmother? Oh my gosh, did she die? Did she run away? What happened? And then my great-grandmother would just show up and be like, oh, here's some gold and some coins, by the way. <laughs> and they were like, what? And so before they fled North Korea, my grandfather's family buried gold and coins. And they were poor and starving in South Korea at this point. There were so many kids. Lucky they had a house, but they were they were struggling. And so... Actually, the first time my great-grandmother walked back to North Korea and walked back to South Korea because she thought, who's going to bother a little old Korean lady? She put the stuff in her hair because all Korean women had long hair and they put it in buns and they would like put a little pin in their hair to put, she hid it in her hair. But um, she got caught and they made her take out, take it out of her hair. Mm-hmm. So then the third time, and I, I don't know where that happened. I'm not clear whether that happened the end of the first time or the second time. She still had, and she would hide it in her clothing. So she did still manage to mm-hmm. sneak some things over. She would like fold it over in her clothes. And then, you know, even though they, they caught it in her hair. So I know at least the third time she walked up and over, she would uh, eat the money and jewel, the gold and poop it out. And the last time she, uh, boy, you want to talk about tough stock I come from. The third time she escaped um, from North Korea, they, she was caught. And according to my mom, my grandmother, my great grandmother was thrown into a cell, stripped oh. naked and, um, she had to play dead. And so oh she, they beat her, they kicked her and she had to okay. just pretend she was dead. And then they threw her body into a pit of bodies, oh nude. Oh my goodness. And yeah. at nightfall, she had to climb out of this pit of bodies and made it back to South Korea, still eating and pooping out these gold chunks and coins. And so so tough. Like that is incredible. Are you kidding? Right. That's like stuff you see in the movies, right? It is. I have her pictures on my, um, I do have her pictures on my wall. I look at them every day. Uh, And um, so the last time she came back, they were like, stop. Can you just stop going to North Korea? (laughs) Which is probably and why she would just disappear, right? She would just people probably would not want her to my go. My mom would wake up. My mom would wake up and she'd be gone like three times for a month. Um oh. but actually also the last time she came back, the war broke out. And so she didn't she didn't leave after that. But all those efforts were short lived because with the war they were still so poor. My my father, my grandfather would go to the Red Cross and take all the clothes that was um donated. And my mom and her sisters and my grandmother and my all the women would mend the clothes with a needle and they would like pull thread from the clothes that needed mended and then like remend it with its own thread and then sell the mm. clothes on the street to try mm. to make money. So that's that's kind of wow. yeah, that was how they 
oh my gosh. And then, then um, the communists pushed down. And so they had to flee Seoul and lived in a cave. And then the Americans invaded and then and landed with MacArthur and then pushed it back up. So then they had to move again. And then, um, the, then the North Koreans pushed down again. So they had to move again. And then the, the battle line kept pushing north, south, north, south, north, south of the 30th parallel, where it was at the beginning of the war anyway. Hmm. So nothing landmass was gained. So my parents, uh-huh. my mom ended up in Seoul finally after having to flee, going back, fleeing, and going back. And my father, like I said, eventually after Seoul, they landed in Pusan, and then they Pusan was taken over, and then they ended up in Tegu, where he calls his hometown now. Wow. Yeah. Ooh. What an incredible story. Yeah, thanks. Just, and, and those are just pieces, I know. Yeah, pretty intense stuff. So I come from... I come from tough stock. That being said, I come from tough stock that isn't always very sensitive. And I, I'm constantly working at my sensitivity. Uh, I find sensitivity in my Tai Chi practice that I have not found with, with asana, but it's, it's the, my trajectory is becoming more subtle because I started out with like hardcore martial arts. Then I went to a soft, uh, it's called Tekyum. It's a Korean form of hard martial art. Then I went to a slightly softer form of martial art, Kung Fu, which required a little bit more subtlety with this more soft form. Then from there, I went to, um, I guess, cardio kickboxing, which had like not a lot of subtlety at all, actually. But then anyway, to to yoga asana, which got me Mm -hmm. in my body in a strong way, but also to listen to more subtly. And then from yoga asana, I'm now doing Tai Chi and I'm in a four-year yoga therapy training. So my personal practice is actually more therapeutic which I believe that all yoga asana has an opportunity to be. And my personal mm-hmm. practice is actually this Tai Chi long and short form, which to me right now is so subtle. And so the subtlety, like the scrappiness is still is being balanced more with the level of subtlety that I think is just like, it's working for me. I'm more That's sustainable. Great. Yeah, I'm sustainable. Well, and it, yeah, and it sounds like the trauma and the survivor physiology is mm. coming out of the system, like not just yours, but your ancestry, if that makes any sense or no. It does make a huge bunch of sense. So it's interesting when I when we think about family ancestry and we think about the lineage, I have this kind of like difficult blessing, Candice, that my family, my lineal trauma is very clearly indicated in two parts of my body, my left shoulder and my left hip. and. Mm. Um, what, how that translates to me immediately is that one of the ways my father would abuse me is that he would sit on the end of the bed with his legs spread and I would have to stand between his knees at the edge of his legs in Korean martial art, um, in Korean salute fashion because my father was in the Korean army. So he beat us militarily. And so he had a collection of sticks and depending on whatever aggression I had would be based on the, the weight of the stick. And so I would stand at the edge of his knees and he would beat me in my left thigh and my left arm and my left side of my face with the stick. And so it was really like in the military style was to do it in the same place. And he always did it where like you couldn't see it. So if I wore a short sleeve shirt, you couldn't see I had a bruise on the top of my arm. You know, he would do it on my thigh or at my hips. So I have to wear shorts in gym. You couldn't see the bruise. Okay. You know, and he never hit me in the face. He more poked me in my face than hit me so that I would never have a face bruise. 
And so I think that that has to do with why I have this like perennially, like chronically tight left um, shoulder and which is more deltoid actually. And then like hip area. But that is that being said from one of the ways my father would, would beat me. It's this, this pain that I have in my body almost all the time is tied to the female lineage. It's directly tied Mm -hmm. to the female history lineage I have. And when I can, and when I am deeply in touch with that part of trauma and healing, this part of my body relaxes. The other fascinating mm-hmm. thing is that when I was abused as a child, there's different levels of frozen younger Mia also embodied in this physical pain. So when I li- pause and listen to the pain and the tightness, I try to listen very deeply to whatever age little Mia that is that I'm listening to and what she needs. Oftentimes it's just being held and the Mm -hmm. exercise definitely helps. But when I'm healing the little stages of little Mia, I feel this matriarchal, historical, long, long, long lineage, including my father's side of the family matriarchal, this long, long, long lineage of like a relief, a sigh, a collective sigh, whenever I can get it to release a little bit. But the messed up thing is that, yeah, the messed up thing is that there is so much immediate trauma that me as a woman and young woman survived. My mother and my father's sister and mother survived. And then their female side's going back and back and back. And I have an older sister who survived her own levels of trauma. You know, mm-hmm. Candace, there's a whole lot of just the female energy trauma legacy in my body. And it's in me more than anyone else that I know of in, that, in my family on both sides. And I don't feel like I'm this special chosen one. Just for whatever reason, I think I'm the one that's most sensitive to it and the one that's agreeing to listen to it more. I'm not going to get surgery. I'm not going to go on meds for it. I'm already doing to the degree of uh, to the degree of how I can hold space myself for it. And I think I'm the only one that's embracing it. And that's why I'm feeling mm-hmm. it, girl. Absolutely. There's a space for you to heal it. And it, it seems like the soul of your family, there's an innate understanding of that through you. Yeah. Which can be, you know, a huge gift or a huge burden. <laughs> different times, different things, I would it's, imagine. It's, uh, yeah, different times, different things, and at the same time, same thing. Yeah. Well, and you know, when you said about the pain here in your hip and your shoulder, it, that is, it sounds like it's kind of perpetual in ways or it's layers of it. And as you spoke about that, I just thought about, um, I thought about your, your great-grandma who was going to get the money and um, pretended to play, play dead, right? Yeah. And it's, it, it feels so similar to that in a way to me where if you know you're going to get hit, your body's going to just build up the armor. Mm. That's and a great, great choice. Brace yourself. Yeah, great right? point. So in a, in a big way, that sounds like it might have helped you. Your body helped you in that way. Interesting. Yeah, my body, I bless this. I'm so grateful and thankful for this very, very strong body. I mean, it's definitely been through a lot. And in my adult years, whether it's like current karma or past karma, karma or like choices I survived or choices I made, all the above, I've had six surgeries in two and a half years. Um, wow. One on each knee and four have been oral. 
So mm-hmm. definitely if we if we want to get subtle and esoteric, you know, knees and legs have to do with going forward in life and supporting you that way, the trajectory and, you know, having knee surgeries might suggest that there's this like, am I going forward in a mindful way? Am I going forward, in, you know, too fit quick? Do I need to slow down? I had no choice Grounding. to slow down. Grounding, right? Yeah. And the speed. And the oral thing has to do a lot with like speech and, um, you know, representation in that way of speaking and digesting the, the saliva and teeth are the first part of the digestion system, you know, which has to do with processing in that way. So I get that there's a lot of subtle and very deeply connected effects to this physical body having all these surgeries. So I try to go between the planes from gross to subtle. Um, mm-hmm. because I knowing, knowing I can get too subtle and lose the physical connection, I'm trying to stick in the physical realm of how my surgeries are helping this body, which connects to my shoulder and hip, which connects, I know back to this matriarchal spiritual, um, kind of like burden slash gift I have. So if that makes sense, I'm translating the physical yeah. growth into this pain, to heal all of it. So the pain's very, Absolutely. very helpful. Yeah, right. It sounds like in a way it's keeping you connected with with the physical. Yeah. Connected with the body. Yeah. No choice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's switch gears here. I have some fun questions for you. I hope okay. these are fun. What's it like to teach yoga in the jails? Oh, I love teaching yoga in Cook County Jail. I teach prenatal yoga. So, oh, you do. Yeah. I've been teaching prenatal yoga in Cook County Jail for eight years. And because of where we are, I don't always see the same women twice because they volunteer to take the yoga class. And also, sometimes they either get released or they get sentenced. Then they move to the prison. Mm-hmm. So, I, that's one sad thing for me because I don't get to see them often enough. You know, I go once a month. So, I don't know if they had their baby, did they have their baby? Um, it's also interesting, very fulfilling for me to connect with these women who made choices. They all made choices and we make choices. And I feel like we're all in our own type of jail, like we're all in our own type of hell. So their being in jail is the physical manifestation of whatever jail I put myself into, the choices I make. Mm-hmm. So working with them is like a practice on working with me in a way. And also... yeah. Um, I think it's good to give these women coping techniques that I really hope that they can take away with them. So I keep it super simple and I keep it super applicable. Like let's practice deep breathing. It's rewarding for me to see these women breathe deeply. And it's a dialogue. Like I love how you appreciate the amalgam of this conversation. I try to make our practice an amalgam. I welcome feedback. Mm-hmm. I, I pause for Q&A with them. And I, I, I try to gently insist on them giving feedback just to verbalize. I do feel calmer after 10 deep breaths. Like, great. So I keep my jail Wonderful. yoga very simple so that they can learn something to take away with them. And that's rewarding for me. That's wonderful. And I love how you use that reflection for yourself of like what working on yourself and what, um, where are you caged or what jail are you in? Yeah. I love that mm-hmm. experience. So what's the lesson with Nurse Beth? Or do you see it, do you see it that way? <laughs> I do. It's so funny. Like I try to find some kind of codified thing. I'm like, okay, what's the acting how does that tie in with the spiritual work? Yeah. And my, my codifying like 
kind of like brand or not branding. Well, branding is one thing. Binding Freudian slip. <laughs> My <laughs> binding one overall kind of mission statement with everything is that I seek self-awareness and my choices also encourage self-awareness in myself and others. So for the nurse Beth, for me as an actress, oh my God, for sure. Like I've done, I think 25 episodes or more. So believe me, I'm like, understand the character and I know what it's like to be on the set. I still Mm -hmm. sometimes get nervous and I feel like I overact and I go through this process of self-judgment And I go through this, like, why do I do this? I'm an awful person. I suck. Why am I even bothering? And any kind of self-criticism is an opportunity to really think, why ask myself, why am I feeling that way? Me acting on this TV show does that more for me than anything else in my life right now. Wow. Me acting, period, is the biggest opportunities for self-reflection because I get, I still judge myself so heavily. So in that access for my own personal growth, that's why I'm doing it. And honestly, a part of the, and I believe me, I am lucky. Like I paid off my car. I bought a condo. A lot of my monetary lifeline is this NBC TV show. And I am so thankful and grateful. So another, yeah, another part Mm -hmm. of my activism, my, my enjoyment and activism with being on the show is representation. So I am an activist for Asian American representation in the Chicago theater scene. And I got to start out specific. So I actively do things like I produce, I promote Asian Americans to write plays. I put together a whole series at Chicago's Best Theaters, Victory Garden, Steppenwolf, and The Goodman to read these plays that are directed by and written by local Asian American theater talent because we need to tell our stories. Even if the story is about an African American family, or even if the story is about like reading a book in outer space, it's still an Asian American playwright filtering the universe through their lens. And so my way of living my activism is being on that TV show 25 times, is being the best actress I can be so they call me back 250 more times, is being a walk-on player here and there that's like saying, hey, I, I could be anybody, but guess what? I don't have to be the majority person to be here. I'm just gonna be me. I'm gonna be an Asian American middle-aged woman who's a nurse. And honestly, truth be saying, that reflects life. There are a lot of Asian American middle-aged women who are nurses. Not mm-hmm. on TV though, but my right. little bit of represent. every time I do an acting job on stage, um, even if it's a voiceover job or on camera, on my commercials, I'm bringing my whole self, including my the, how I'm presenting to the world, to that very consciously. Yeah. I think that goes back to engagement. Yeah. As you said, like you really show up. Yeah, I try and to. And that's extremely powerful. And speaking of that, of, of power and showing up, what is your thought about, at the moment, about how women can really step into leadership in their own leadership? Well, I think the answer to every question is twofold. The general answer to every question is it depends and but really, really, really the answer to really every, every, every question I think that is who are you in relationship to what the question is? You know, so if a woman wants to become more of a leader, who is she in relationship to herself as a leader? And how she discovers that is through all the techniques that you and I practice and teach is 
tools of self-awareness, meditation, journaling, the basics, sleep well, drink enough water, all these things. So if Mm -hmm. a woman can get to know herself better, and you can even frame that in like the business model of success, like what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? That's great. That's still a degree of self-knowledge. Knowing a, a woman knowing who she is and why she wants to bring her whole self to the table of leadership is the first way that she can step into a role of leadership. The second one is it depends. It depends on what you can leverage. Mm-hmm. I have a yoga client whom I adore. We're very close. She happens to be born into wealth and made wealth uh, as an adult. She's a, she, a young adult. She's a senior now. So she's in every position to step into leadership. But because she happens to have the finances, she's not really in a position of leadership. She chooses to donate money to organizations that mean a lot to her. And she's very generous with the way she donates. Mm -hmm. So her form of leadership is leveraging the wealth that she inherited and made. And so... Mm. um, she doesn't want to be in a position of responsibility of leadership, but she's considered a leadership in the philanthropy world. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So it really depends. Absolutely. That right. being said, her and I got into my car and we drove all the way out to the far west suburbs to canvas and knock on doors for Lauren Underwood, who flipped an Illinois U.S. Congress seat. Yeah. That's awesome. So I'm driving out there two hours west with my like almost 80 year old yoga client. So (laughs) and so in the way that's her displaying leadership in the way that she could. Yeah. You know, so again, it really depends on on that. It depends. Well, and I think part of what you're saying, at least as I'm hearing it, is there are so many ways we can display leadership or be a leader in ourselves. Yeah. And part of it is about noticing what it is that is your unique way and what what are you already doing? Exactly. Knowing, you know, why you who you are in relationship to being a leader, so being clear about intention, right? So much of our actions yeah. if based in intention can be so subs- uh, substantial, sustainable and like just get more done. Like why you want to be a leader who you are, who you think you are, and who you are in the form of leadership that, yes, you need to take knowing your strengths are as a leader. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's been wonderful to have you. Is there anything else you want to share today before we go? Yeah. Candice, you're an awesome woman. You keep doing what you're doing. You are so, at the same time, professional and just have your act together, everything from your lovely graphics to your messaging to your, to like your, your like scheduling, your professionalism with that. But what you're being professional with is so beautiful and spiritual and can be this esoteric thing that somebody can run away with, but you are practical, you are grounded and you're completely authentic. And so thank you for all the great work that you're doing. Oh my gosh. That's so true. I (laughs) look at your newsletters and I'm like, where, how is she, how does she have the time to do all this? And where in the world is she? And the last one was written on a plane. I was like, you go. Right. Wi-Fi on a plane? Right. Like, what is she doing? It's amazing. I was like, I got to do my newsletter by Friday and I'm flying. So here goes. Here goes. Love it. Love it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mia. You are just brilliant out there in the world. And I think you are starting a podcast of your own. I am soon, soon. The yeah. Experiment of Living. Is that yes, right? The Experiment oh, of I Living. Oh, I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Um, oh, thanks. I'd love to have you on sometime too. 
Oh, I would love to. I would love to. We'll we'll um put a plug in for that when it co- shows up. Thanks. Thank you so much. Take care. All right, you take care, Candace. Take care, hun. Thank you so much, Mia, for being on the show. I learned a lot and had fun in the discovery of learning more of who she is and her ancestry. It was really fun. And thank you all out there for listening. If you want a taste of Mia's work, I would recommend checking out her yoga classes, her yoga nidra classes as well. And later this week, if you want a little experience with her, you can tune into this meditation that she will offer on tuning into breath and being, feeling into the curiosity of the life-giving force of breath. You can learn more about Mia and get engaged with the things that she offers, the things that she's promoting in her world through miapark.com. I'm wishing you all a lovely and healthy new year. I hope this was a lovely start of the year for you in thinking about your own ancestry story, your own resilience, and how you'd like to move in the world. I hope that you tune in again. Next week, we're talking about ritual and how to create some meaningful rituals that support you in feeling like yourself this year. See you next time on the Embody Podcast.